Thanks, Aaron. Well, I, I agree with your assessment that there's not a lot positive in this one. Um, not necessarily sure about not a lot interesting. It's a <laughs> Uh, but I suppose it depends how you're using that kind of a word. Um, it's an interesting word. Um, let me invite you, if you haven't taken the chance when James asked you to, to open a Bible up to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the book after the second last book of the Bible. Um, uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's, a, there's a nice little stack of them over there on a shelf that you're more than willi- uh, welcome to uh, grab one from. Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, thank you for my beautiful assistant Rick there who's been displaying the Bible. Um, if you don't have one, feel free to keep one of those if you don't have a Bible at home. Uh, why don't I pray for us and then we'll get into it. Jesus, you are the one who holds the seven stars in your hand. You're the one who has the might of the seven spirits of God. Lord, the completeness of the church in all time, in heavenly and earthly representation, is held by you. The Spirit of God, all-powerful, all-seeing, all-pervasive, is the Spirit that you send into the world. Spirit, would you come here today with the words of Jesus and open our hearts and our eyes that we might live Would you shake us awake if we've been slumbering? Would you point us to Christ and the life that is in him for us to live? Pray it in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Excuse me whilst I just open my Bible up. Fun question to start with today. Why do we fear persecution? I mean, it's a thing that comes up a bit in the Revelation. You can't avoid it. Uh, And yet, uh, the pervasive feeling that I get in the Australian church is that we're not super-duper keen um, or overwhelmingly afraid, might be a better way of putting it. Um, You know, and and, and let's let's be honest, there's a diversity of answers to that question, isn't there? Like, part of it is genuinely probably just a fear of personal loss. Um, (laughs) I like having a house. I I like not being in jail. I don't mind being alive. I am quite fond of my car, you know, like, like the things that, that you might lose if you lived in somewhere like Afghanistan and you were a Christian today, um, uh, them and more, actually. Uh, but it's more than that, isn't it? It, it? It's also partly that we fear that the persecutor might win, that it might work, that a church and a Christian who is healthy and, and, and well in the midst of a peacetime might be destroyed, might, might fall apart when the tribulation, uh, which remember, the tribulation in the Revelation is a term which refers to something that has been happening from the first coming of Jesus through to the second coming of Jesus. Uh, when, when tribulation comes, uh, we feel like we might fall apart. We feel like we might depart the faith. Yet as we travel through these divine oracles to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, uh, these royal edicts, one thing we have seen already is that healthy churches can thrive, can live, can, can do well 
under, in the midst of persecution. You know, when, when Jesus wrote, just to jog your memory, to the church in the city of Smyrna, he had no word of rebuke for them. Even though they were suffering and, and were about to suffer even more, he says. He says, one of them's already died and it's going to get worse. That's not the most optimistic outlook I've ever heard, personally. But they're doing well. We're going to see a similar reality when we get to the church in Philadelphia next week. And, and today, uh, we're not seeing that reality. Today, we are sadly in the letter or the, the message to the church in Sardis. And, and it is a sobering word spoken to Sardis. What's really interesting about this message to me, of all of these churches, Sardis is the one that we have the least reason to think there was any form of persecution happening. There's, there's no mention, read it, verses 1 to 6, when we went through that reading just now, did you notice, there's no mention of pressure pushing in on the church, of tribulation, of trouble. Uh, the city of Sardis had one of the more significant Jewish populations uh, in, in any of the Roman cities. Um, after this time, but not, not an awful long time after this time, they were going to build a, a, a new synagogue in Sardis, for instance. It was about the size of a footy field, and it, uh, it being one of the largest in antiquity, and, and it was right next to the uh, Greek gymnasium in town, which was a massive gathering point for pagans. Uh, they, they had a fair bit of prominence there. Uh, and and so they were, they were large, and they were a prominent community there, the Jews. Uh, and... Uh, and so they, we get this impression that the Jewish community, not the Christian community, the Jewish community had favor in the city. And, and there's a commentator, his name's Craig Keener, and he makes what I think is a really helpful observation here. He says, Jesus' followers, he didn't say that, he says, Jesus' followers seem to have coexisted peacefully with the synagogue community, the Jewish community, and therefore likely coexisted peacefully with the city establishment as a whole, lacking the world's opposition they may have grown comfortable in their relationship with the world. You see, here's a, here's a reality that has proven true again and again and again for years. For all of the years, actually, of the existence of the church. Comfort is at least as dangerous. Probably more dangerous to churches than persecution ever will be. And Jesus looks at this comfortable church in Sardis, this prominent church, and he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. The wording there is actually, literally, you have the name of being alive. This is a thing that happens in the Bible. It's going to keep happening. The idea of the name is more than just what you're called. It's a, it's a word for your identity. Uh, it, it speaks of, of who you are on a more fundamental level than just, I'm John, right? And the church in Sardis, at least according to the world, has this identity alive. From the outside, you'd, you'd have looked at Sardis, we'd have looked at Sardis, and seen a church that looked alive. The city around them probably looked and saw a positive institution which held no real offense to them. You know, uh, what a lovely church. Isn't this nice having these guys in society here? The, the other churches of the, uh, of the area of Asia, um, which 
Turkey today, or Tortilla, or whatever you call it. The other churches may well have looked at them and thought, wow, these guys are doing something right. Look at us, we're persecuted, we got it rubbish, we're a small church, we're getting done away with, and, and, and yet look at them, what a beautiful building they have. What an amazing ministry team. What fantastic music, what lively teaching they have. I know your works, says Jesus. You have the name of being alive, but you are Does that shake you a little bit to hear Jesus say that to a church? Jesus looks at a church that everyone else looks at and says, alive. Man, those guys have got it going on. But he who has eyes like a flame of fire and sees into the souls of people declares dead. He says it to shake them. His very next words are, wake up. It should shake us too. In our comfortable Australian context, this should give us pause to think. Like you might think things are getting harder for Christians in Australia, and that's, that's probably true. But nevertheless, we live in one of the easiest periods of history, in the easiest countries in history, to be a Christian as far as persecution goes. This should give us pause to think. Because the context of the church in Sardis, perhaps more than any of the other churches, resembles the context of the Australian church over the last, let's say, 100, 200 years. Comfortable. And yet, haven't we celebrated our churches in this nation? You still hear Adelaide referred to as the city of churches. Yet Jesus may look at churches comfortable churches in a comfortable country that the world sees and says alive and he may declare dead and the question we should rightly ask is how do you recognize a dead church what does that mean if a church can seem alive from the outside and yet be declared dead by the one who's the only one whose word actually matters on this right it's not it's not a popular vote here you know well we got we got seven billion people saying it's alive and jesus has got one but he's the only one that matters how do you recognize when the church is in fact dead or dying you notice there, there's a mix of that here jesus says wake up what does what he say wake up strengthen what remains and is about to die for i've not found your works complete in the sight of my god how do you know and, and this is hard. Lots of people have suggested answers to this question. There are, there are some things that perhaps we naturally look for in a church, which we can rule out pretty early. Uh, a church's life does not depend on the building. Kind of already alluded to that. Doesn't depend on the facilities and the equipment and what they have at hand. Thank God, by the way. This is, by far and away, the nicest building we've ever used. I mean, the town hall was lovely, but we had to set it up every week. But, um, but you know, <laughs> uh, I don't think the roof's going to fall in on us. Um, a church can be in a house, in, uh, or it can be in the most beautiful building. 
It can have the most excellent facilities. It can have a Nord Stage 3 piano with an acoustic paneling system across the walls that's specially designed to make it sound cool when the guy at the front talks. Uh, and, and it can have a big sign out the front in neon lights uh, with, with three separate auditoriums and the most awesome play area for kids ever. And it can be dead. It could just be a building. You know, we, we're looking at doing a building upgrade here at some point soon. Uh, I use soon, probably I should put it in inverted commas, uh, soonish, at some point in the future. Uh, but an updated building, you know, it, it might be helpful um, for the ministry here. It, 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 but, but having a nice building makes you not one millimeter more alive or dead as a church. A church with no building at all can be the most alive church in the world. A church can have stirring music. You know, isn't that, isn't that something that naturally we kind of look for when we go to a church? I do a bit. Like, if I go to a church and, and, and we're singing along to a MIDI on a CD, I go, wow, this is a bit uncomfortable. Um, and yet, a, a church can have stirring music that makes your heart beat and makes your, you feel good, and, and it can still be dead. A church can have a really cool preacher, like you guys do. Humble sort, thank you. <laughs> he can say some really cool stuff. He can even say some really biblical-sounding stuff. And the church can be dead. I want to suggest today three marks of a dead or dying church. Three symptoms, if you will. My key reason for all three of these comes in this passage, uh, for, and, and it's also smattered across the entire New Testament in the Bible. In this passage, I see it in verse 3. Jesus says, Remember, then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Remember then what you received and heard. We see it again in, in somewhere, but maybe very prominently in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul turns to perhaps the example of a struggling, maybe dying church, failing church in the New Testament. And he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. We see it many places across all of the books of the New Testament and indeed across the Bible. But, but three marks that we draw from this idea of the gospel, remembering the, the word that we heard. Mark number one <coughs> of a dead or dying church. They do not teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in, in, uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. If a church is not marked by the clear declaration of the good news of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus and through this the saving of sinners, then that church is either on its way into the grave or it's already cold in the ground. No matter how it looks, Number two, they do not 
share the gospel. They do not teach the gospel. They do not share the gospel. Now, this can come separated or connected with number one, by the way. Uh, It can be that what's not taught on Sunday is also not shared in the rest of the lives of the people in the church. But also very often, it seems to me that you will find churches that bring up the gospel on a Sunday and then act like they didn't hear it the rest of the week. It's a spiritually healthy thing to declare the good news on a Sunday, but to do that and then to not declare it any time else involves a certain level of blindness. It seems that a lot of churches will will congratulate themselves on their Sunday teaching, but, but need to hear the words of James when he says that if anyone is a hearer of the word and, a, and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. So two marks, they don't teach the gospel, they don't share the gospel. And the obvious and natural extension of that, they don't live by the gospel. A church may give nods to the gospel in its services. Don't think it's, I still don't think it's Satan's preferred option for them to do that. I think he'd rather they just shut up about it altogether, but, but I think he lives with it. Um, he finds it acceptable to have churches that nod to the gospel. They mention it in communion, maybe even sometimes in the sermons, but they don't see or they, they, they won't see that it is meant to transform them, to change them. They don't see that the gospel leads us to love the people of God and to care for one another. They don't see that the gospel leads us to have compassion for those in need, for the poor, for the refugee, for the single parent, for the widow, especially to have love for those distant from God. They don't see that the gospel should build in us a desire to grow in holiness and in the likeness of Jesus. There's no passion for killing sin. No passion for repentance. The gospel leads, it it must lead to transformation. Ongoing in the life of the believer. The Believing the gospel isn't a mechanical transaction where you go, okay, I'm going to check the box and believe in Jesus, and now I'm saved for heaven, and the rest of my life isn't changed. No, it is a thing that transforms us from the inside out continuously, ongoingly, until the day that he returns. Now, it's possible someone's hearing that and going, um, hey, where are you getting that from? I didn't realize that the gospel was meant to transform every part of my life. Uh, I thought it was just a kind of a heaven and hell thing. That's that That seems a bit affronting, especially when you're not drawing it from Scripture, and, and, and I'm glad you asked. Uh, I offer as my example for why I believe this, the New Testament, um, especially the letters of the New Testament, all of them. Have you noticed this? The New Testament letters are always calling the people they're writing, written to, and, and us, by extension, to live in light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even the revelation of Jesus Christ, which, as we've noted, is a New Testament letter, is doing this. Sometimes, the, they, the way they do it is they mix life 
and the gospel throughout, kind of in this continuous interchange of this is the gospel and this is how you should live in light of the gospel. Sometimes, maybe more often, uh, they have a gospel section and they have an application section where they bring the gospel into life. My favorite, easiest example of this is the letter to the Ephesians, right? Uh, we, we went through this la- uh, last year, I think, and, uh, and this should be memorable to you because we looked at this several times throughout that series. But first three chapters... Gospel, 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 gospel. I was going to say it three times, but I just couldn't hold it in. Uh, and we have some of the most glorious realities expounded for us there, brought out there. Uh, like, like, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, so just after those three chapters of gospel, 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 I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that's like the title for the rest of the book. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And having had the first three chapters of gospel, 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 the last three are gospel in life, gospel in life, gospel in life, application, transformation, Now, these three marks, not teaching the gospel, not sharing the gospel, not living by the gospel, are, like I said, marks. They are symptoms. What makes the church dead is that they don't believe the gospel. They don't remember what they've heard. There's no relationship with Jesus. They are not trusting in Him in their lives. The other thing that means is that a genuine living church must be marked by the teaching of the gospel, the sharing of the gospel, and the transformation that comes with the gospel, the implications of the gospel, if you like. Church, this is what we need to be marked by. Our first core value as a church and one of our doctoral, doctrinal distinctives are both the centrality of the gospel. We put it in twice, just in case. It's not enough, though, to have it written down in a few places, obviously. Your doctrine is only as good as the deeds that it produces. Lived doctrine is the only real doctrine you have. Jesus says to Sardis, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Church, we must be marked by the opposite of these three marks. We must be active as a gospel teaching church. Now, note, churches very often start out there and then drift from there. They, they drift to other things. Uh, the, the truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus becomes decentralized and then it becomes forgotten it's not usually a one-step process where we go okay we're done with the gospel and we're moving on no it it moves out of the center and then it moves into the peripheries and then it moves we don't know where because it's gone let me issue an open invitation here from john and anyone who ever steps into this front space to teach the church i didn't ask them i do have the authority to say it If you ever feel that we have ceased to teach the gospel here, better still, if you ever feel that 
the gospel isn't at the center of something that we're doing, okay? Because, like, you can, you can go to church and say, they teach the gospel, they mention it sometimes. And, and, but, like, if you don't feel that it's at the center of one of the things that we are doing, pick a ministry, right, of your gospel community, of your, of your pastoral guidance you get from them, of the, of the music that we sing, and, yes, of the, of the preaching, on a Sunday, then come and explain to me where we're falling short and, and, and where we could be doing better, where we could be more centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't claim that I don't have blind spots. Human, hello. This is a lifeblood essential for a real church. And yet, uh, let, let us not be so proud as to think that there may never come the day when we need to be shaken by the Savior and told to wake up and strengthen what remains. And let's never think that it, you might not be the one who's going to do the shaking for him. Or be shaken. Don't remain silent. Come, point it out. Open invite. If I tell you we don't really do that anymore, leave. Take as many people as you can with you. Please don't do that right now. I hope you're centered on the gospel. Two, we must be active as a gospel-sharing church. I think a lot of us would say that we, at, at points in our lives, we've attended churches that did well at teaching the gospel, but that where there wasn't a lot going on in the sharing department. That's not one church. That's that's a fairly common thing in the Australian church. Uh, and it it should be said, people don't tend to just suddenly be missionary evangelistic people. Like that's that's just a reality, I suppose. Um, sometimes, sometimes someone will like come to faith and then boom, like like everyone's getting converted because God's just doing something in that person. More often is that someone that people grow in the gospel, and as they grow in the gospel, they grow in sharing the gospel, and it's a process. It's been one of the really profound privileges of four and a bit years uh, at this church to see the ways that God's been challenging us together in this. The ways He has used us to grow one another and has led people who would never have felt able to share the good news of Jesus with anyone, to talk to someone else about Jesus, to not start not just accepting the gospel, but sharing it with others. That's been profoundly a privilege. We still have a lot of room to grow here. Seems to me the moment you think you've arrived is the moment you fail. So church, let's go on being a church that is growing in sharing the gospel. Let's go on boldly taking little steps. Boldly stepping out by bringing up God's stuff in a conversation with or, or, or boldly stepping out by being open with our friends about what's most important to us or, or boldly stepping out to make relationships with people who don't know Jesus or, or, or um, you know, kind of desiring that they will. Boldly stepping out by giving that friend a Life Series invite, which I conveniently forgot to mention during the update today, but we have those. 
boldly stepping out by committing to come with them and help them answer their questions. Even though it feels awkward and even though you feel like you just, you don't have any of the answers and you don't know what to say when someone talks to you, just trusting that God's going to help and stepping out. Let's go on spurring one another on in this. One, one beautiful thing that came out of that gospel-shaped outreach course that we did, or series that we did earlier this year for me, was that I was praying for the personal missions of others in my gospel community. And they were praying for mine. Okay. I hope that's a practice that's going to continue on continue to be a thing about of, of who we are as a church well after the words gospel-shaped outreach are forgotten. Thirdly, we have to be active as a gospel-applying church, a church where we both talk about Jesus and become more like Jesus. Church, this means that we come to the scriptures, we come to this book, looking for how they lead us deeper into who he is and how we become more like him. We come here looking to grow in the likeness of Christ. We don't see this Bible as an interesting study guide. That, gosh, I can recite all sorts of facts about it. It's good to be able to recite scripture, but it's not, it's not everything. We see it as a challenge to go deeper. You know, like we said, with the dead church, though, those are marks, right? Those are symptoms. Those are things that must mark us, and we should be actively, eagerly seeking them out, right? Part of a mark of that church is that, like, like if, we, if we have the gospel, we'll seek out teaching and sharing and living by the gospel. But if we really want that, the main thing, above all of the other things, is that we must be passionate about the gospel and about the relationship with Jesus Christ, which we have in the gospel. That's where we'll find fuel to keep going. If you want to fuel gospel outreach and you do it by just being really good at effort, it's going gonna, it's gonna to flop eventually. That's where the life of the believer and the life of the church comes from. Abide in me and I in you, Jesus says. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Church, let this confront you if it needs to. Perhaps you've gotten used to the comfortable life. And you've gotten too comfortable in this world. Charles Spurgeon uh, asked a good question, he said, how can I look to be at home in the enemy's country or comfortable in a wilderness? This is not my rest. This is the place of the furnace and the forge and the hammer. He spoke better than I do. C.S. Lewis put it a little bit more simply, and that's not it. If you want a religion to make you feel comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Is your Christianity comfortable? You know, this message, this divine oracle, was written to a church 
Churches are made up of people, though, so it isn't wrong to ask, is it possible that you are a, a little picture, a microcosm of the issue that Sardis is facing? Is it possible that people look at your life and see something they think of as alive? You know, a living believer, someone who's involved in their church and in so many ways living for Jesus on the outside. Is it possible, you know, maybe you have a reputation of being alive? Maybe you don't. Maybe you think you do. That's a real possibility. I ask this not because I want to be rude, but because it is so important. Is it possible that the Lord Jesus looks at one like you, who everyone says is alive, and sees through you to something you know is hiding there in the middle and says, dead? dying if that's you today don't run from that reality jesus doesn't say this to crush jesus says this to enliven he says this to shake awake let it confront you jesus is calling to you today remember the gospel that you received and that you heard keep it and repent if you've never received it before receive it today it's, it's quite possible that you've been in church your whole life and that's the case. Trust that at the cross, Jesus carried your sin. Trust that in him, it is dealt with finally, once and for all by his blood. Submit yourself to him as Lord and Savior because there is salvation nowhere else. Be saved by the one who rose from the dead and gives you life. If you're someone who's had the chance today to take a realistic look at your life, and maybe you've trusted in Jesus, but maybe you've, you're realizing you've strayed far from the cross and into comfort, into the comfortable life distant from Jesus. Remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Cast yourself back at the feet of Jesus. Pray to him, Lord, I've strayed, I've sinned, I can see it now. But you are more than my sin. Keep me close, Lord. You are my Lord. The divine oracles of Jesus are thick with the call to repentance. Not, let us not be so proud as to think that we never need to hear about this. The Christian life is, in a real way, a constant repentance. Turning away from the world and turning towards Jesus daily. In the moment, has your passion for the gospel and for Jesus grown cold? Don't wait. Come back today. Each of the royal edicts to the seven churches end with promises to the one who conquers. These are not given for our vague considerations, these messages. They are given to us to, as a call to conquer by heaven's definition of conquering, therefore the only definition that counts. If you've just believed in Jesus, or if you are walking with him still, these promises are for you. What does the conquering life look like according to heaven, according to Jesus? It looks like staying alive by remembering and remaining in the saving truth of the gospel. 
To the one who conquers, Jesus promises they will be clothed in white garments. Once again, this doesn't immediately make a great deal of sense to us until we understand it in context. In Revelation 19, John hears a song sung by a great multitude singing hallelujah because Jesus is marrying his bride, the church. And you get this interesting combination. It says that it has been granted to her. Notice it's passive. It's been given to her. It's been granted to the church to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then it says that the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You know what's happened there? Like it's, it's given and they did it. Is God sovereign or do we choose to act? Yes. The righteous deeds are done by God's people and they are granted to us to do. Jesus is promising sustaining power to the end so that we will be able to stand before God at the end righteous through him. He promises he will never blot their names out of the book of life and he will confess their names before the Father and his angels. Do you notice the name thing in this passage? I didn't write this down, but I should have written this down. Like at the start of the passage, Jesus says, you have the name of being alive. The whole world calls you alive. And yet, if you're willing to follow me, if you're willing to acknowledge that you're dead and repent and turn back to me, you will be acknowledged as alive by the only person who actually matters if they acknowledge you as alive. Your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. He will confess your name before the Father and his angels. Those who are faithful to the gospel of Jesus now. Those who are testifying to the truth of Jesus now. He will testify to the salvation of on the day when, when he returns before the Father. Like don't, don't hear that and hear you have to be perfect all of the time. We've already covered this kind of stuff. No, there's grace. There's grace in Jesus. The point is not that you're perfect, but that you're ever turning back to the gospel and therefore to the gospel. You're not saved by your testimony. You're saved by Jesus. But if you are saved by Jesus, then you will seek to testify now. And you will know that he will testify for you before the Father and that will give you great joy and confidence. You're going to be accepted in. Lord, death is where we all started. We know this, your Bible, your word tells us this. We were dead in the sins and transgressions of this world and the ways which we once walked in. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive through Christ Jesus. By grace we have been saved. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has not known the life of Jesus, that they would be able to genuinely pray for you today and accept the life that is in him, accept his saving work on the cross, say, Lord, be my Lord, 
I turn away from this world and I turn to God. I pray for all of us here, Lord, that we would not drift in a deathward direction, but that we would be walking by your Spirit's power towards life, in life. That this would be a living church made up of living Christians who are alive because we remember the good news of Jesus that brought us to life and continues to pour life into these bodies. Lord Jesus, let us walk in the light. Let us repent when we fail to. And let us know that your grace always carries us through. We pray it in Jesus' beautiful name.